Hi, I'm Azure Ashby, CPA and creator of the Love Then Money Institute. Each week, I will bring you inside the life of a real couple and their relationship with money in order to help you and your partner master your own relationship with money. We can no longer rely on the taboo of money to justify our avoidance. And we can no longer change the topic when things get real. I believe it's time we take our financial future by the reins and take control of the money conversation. And we do that by actually having the conversation. So get ready to listen, relate, and be inspired to achieve your financial dreams together. Because you know what they say, first comes love, then comes money. So let's do this. Today we are talking about how love and money, all of that can come together and affect your sex life. So I am so excited to have with me Dr. Day Sheridan, who is a professor of human sexuality, a licensed mental health counselor, a board certified clinical sexologist, and a certified rehabilitation counselor with a private consulting and psychotherapy practice. She has been in the business for over 20 years, and her vision of changing the way we talk about sex is very similar to mine of changing the way we talk about money. I think the part of the problem that you see in the area of sex education is that we don't effectively have the talk. And that is what I see in the money conversation. And so I think that is why both of our visions of changing the conversation and making it more comfortable is so important. So I thought, what would be better than combining our passions of having the conversations about how money can affect your sex life? And I thought that would be a great way to bring our passions together. So I guess let's um, jump right in. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Me too. You know, I don't know how much our listeners know about what exactly a sex therapist does or what that means. So could you give us a brief description of what you do? Sure, absolutely. So I am a licensed mental health counselor. So I'm a general practitioner in psychotherapy. I see people for anxiety, depression, anger management, stress, but my area of specialization and my PhD is in clinical sexology. So I'm certified the state to be a sex therapist, which means that I provide sexuality education, psychoeducation, as well as to help people with any sort of differing functions or medical or emotional issues that have to do with sexuality, relational issues that have to do with communication and intimacy. And it's a great field in that it could be usually very brief therapy, primarily because of what you were discussing before, that we don't have a really good baseline or foundation to talk about sexual matters. And so when my clients come to see me, we start having those conversations and they they give themselves permission to learn more and to understand more, which then opens up the door to communicate more. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I think that that's very similar, you know, from the money standpoint as well, is that, you know, I've been learning a lot about having a safe space to be able to express your, your thoughts, your opinions, your feelings. And I would assume that that is similar to what is important when you're talking about your sex life. 
Absolutely. It all has to do with vulnerability. It has to do with the messages that we received from our family of origin and in our childhoods about privacy and what you are or aren't supposed to discuss, what's embarrassing, what's shameful, you know, what causes guilt or anxiety. And there are so many overlapping stigma and taboo when it comes to talking about sex as it does when talking about money. Does that cause us to be a little bit more secretive? Like, is that part of why porn is so appealing or the things that we find on the internet now these days are so appealing because we're not having that conversation or is it completely unrelated? Well, I think that many people get involved in internet (laughs) types of sexual acting out or, or involving themselves because there is for them, they may seem that there's no risk there. However, those same feelings of shame or guilt or worrisome about the time that they're spending on there, you know, that can create some problems. It depends on each person. Some people can utilize pornography in a healthy way as an addendum to, you know, sex with themselves or with their partners. And some people have difficulty with it based on, again, whether they have a good relationship with their own sexuality, whether they have a good balance in their life and or whether they're utilizing pornography or the internet to replace intimacy with, again, themselves or with another human being. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. And this is kind of a little bit more about the sex part than the money part, but I'm, this part fascinates me because I, I had just met a guy at this last conference I was at and his new business idea is to help people who have become addicted to porn kind of get out of it, like just kind of get off that drug, quote unquote, and get into like a normal relationship. And, you know, my follow-up to that was a lot of times that interaction stays online, but then I wonder, you know, what's the state of our sex lives these days? And when that pornography or that internet chatting or whatever gets taken into like real life or it gets taken to other countries where there's all these, I mean, there's a whole nother conversation, but like, how do you then come back and ever have a normal sex life again? Once you've experienced something that's so outside the realm of what's quote unquote normal with one person, like how do you ever come back and be satisfied with that? Well, that's one of the issues that I'm seeing a lot in my practice nowadays is that people are having such experiences online that can't be replicated. And so when they are faced with being with a partner, they're having arousal and erectile difficulties. They're having issues with maintaining their arousal because there's not as much stimulus. So when you're utilizing pornography or an exciting new chat with somebody or video or whatever it might be, you're firing up a part of your brain that's getting very excited. So, you know, your dopamine, your adrenaline, your norepinephrine, all of these things are firing up. And that's where our tolerance for certain things will start to wane. And so you're going to want more and more. You're going to want more exciting because that which previously excited you no longer fires up those parts of your brain and gets your neurotransmitters, you know, flowing and and going. And so without that, when you're faced with, you know, the humdrum, you know, being with one person who has an average physical body and, you know, that you have to talk to and that it's not all fantasy, 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 
a lot of people can have difficulty because those arousal centers are not firing the way that they perhaps would have had they not been exposed to such titillating content prior to that. Right, right. And so how do you come back from that? Well, you have to want to, right? So recognizing that perhaps I've replaced human contact with this, or maybe I am risk-taking that I'm doing this without my partner knowing, or I'm doing it during the work hours, or I'm spending inordinate amounts of money that I can't afford to do this. So first of all, you have to, just like any sort of addictive or obsessive behavior, you have to realize that you want to stop in the first place. Coming back from that is recognizing how your brain is changing, that looking at reality versus fantasy and taking those steps, going to therapy and finding ways to abstain from the behaviors which are causing you problems and which is difficult because intimacy and sex, those are normal, natural human behaviors. So to completely abstain from something that can provide pleasure and connection is very difficult for some people. One of the other things that that guy said that blew my mind was that the new statistic on the age range of the top users of like Viagra and Cialis. And I wanted to kind of touch on this just for people who have kids and think that this stuff isn't going on is like in the, I don't know, whatever it is, 17 to 25 range or something. And so that is now the highest use age range for those I don't know if there's truth to that or not, but I just thought that was mind-blowing. Absolutely. I've definitely seen an uptick in my practice where young males who don't have any other physical difficulties or any sort of differing abilities, that they are having issues with arousal and with their erectile function when it comes to intimacy with a partner because the stimulation that they've been provided both physically emotionally and mentally through pornography has shifted their neural pathways to keep them from being aroused during circumstances that would be, you know, not quite as extreme. Wow. Really crazy. Yeah. And nowadays people of an older generation that, you know, their biggest exposure would be a playboy that they found, you know, under a bed or their older brother or whatever. And nowadays kids have the world of pornography at their fingertips and things that we couldn't even imagine is just a click away. So we still don't have good quality, comprehensive sexuality education in our schools or in our homes. So kids are learning about sex from the internet and from pornography. And so their first foray into what sex may look or feel like is outside of most people's normal realm of behavior. Right. And I think that's why it is so important. I mean, you know, we touched on it in the intro, but that's why it's so important to have an effective sex talk with your children. But I think that people are really scared. They don't know what to say. Is that something that you teach people or walk people through? Is that part of what you offer as a service? I do. Absolutely. So I do events and I also do private events with people, get their friends together on, you know, how do I do this? How do I, how do I talk about this with my kids? And so my primary thing is, you know, we have to eliminate the concept of the talk, that this needs to be an ongoing, continual, open conversation 
with our kids, you know, not to them or at them, but with our kids throughout the different developmental ages and stages of their emotional, physical, and sexual development. So it's about first getting us as parents comfortable with the fact that this is crucial and this is dire that we need to be having these conversations with our kids. Most people don't because of their own fear that they don't have all the answers, their own fear that, you know, their kid might know more about it than they do. Their fear that they'll say the wrong thing. And if I could make one very large and important point, it would be that the fear that if I educate you about sex, you're going to go out and have sex, that education equals permission, and nothing could be further from the truth. All of the research in the field shows us that the more we talk about sexuality and sexual health with our kids, the more likely they are to abstain. It's later onset of sexual activity, and kids who do choose to become sexually active are more likely to protect themselves and wear condoms and talk about getting tested, whereas when we don't talk about it, kids are completely on their own. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm hoping that everybody listening heard her when she says that having that conversation does not equal permission. It's just educating your child as to all of the different aspects of what it means to be sexually active and having the conversations around that. Right. And it's not just about being sexually active. It's really, it's about intimacy and love and connection and pleasure and the good stuff and about consent and us learning and being able to be comfortable when we're with somebody else to ask them, is it okay? And, you know, would you like to do this? Or, you know, obviously those questions like, are you using birth control or have you been tested? So if we provide them with scripts and with a confident working vocabulary, about sexual matters, it'll be a foregone conclusion and they're going to be more likely to have pleasurable interactions that are mutually decided upon rather than the old, oh, well, it, it just happened or, you know, it's swept away by passion and we put the blinders on and that's where we're more likely to put ourselves at risk for sexually transmitted infections and in pregnancy when we're not having open conversations and planning to, you know, make this decision together. Right. Absolutely. Yes. I love that. Awesome. So I guess let's move on to the topic of, you know, financial stresses affecting your love life. So is that something that you ever see coming through your practice? And if so, how is it manifesting itself? Absolutely. Financial stress, especially nowadays, people being in debt, people keeping secrets about money, it erodes trust. And when you erode trust, again, you're more vulnerable, you're more likely to harbor anger and resentment towards your partner. And when you have that unresolved anger or resentment, it's going to absolutely trickle into the bedroom. It's going to trickle into your daily interactions. Yeah, it's definitely, again, trust and vulnerability and being able to have those open conversations. And when you're not, people get more and more disconnected, both emotionally and physically disconnected. I see it with the couples that I work with as well, but we don't typically get into the conversation of how it's affecting their sex life. I just assume that it probably is. <laughs> it's very interesting because you're right. I think that, you know, it's the little secrets that if they start financially and, you know, you buy 
something and sneak it in while your spouse is in the shower. Um, and then they find it later and say, Oh, when did you get this? You know, kind of everybody knows that it's new, but it's like, Oh, I've had that thing for a while. Those little conversations, or I lent my sister money without asking you. It's like all of those little things that chip away at trust. And then once you chip away there, then everything else becomes questionable. And then once everything else becomes questionable, then it's like, you know, who wants to be intimate with someone you can't trust? And then, you know, it kind of spirals out from there. And so I guess maybe one of the conversations that we can have is what are some steps to take to regain that trust and in the bedroom and otherwise? You know, a lie is a lie is a lie. And I think that we extrapolate. So if you're capable of lying to me about whether or not you loaned a family member money or you're hiding purchases, what else are you able to lie about? And our brains can, you know, fantasize about all sorts of different ways that you could be betraying me. And so then I treat you as if I've been betrayed. And I mean, and none of this may be a conversation that those two people are having with one another. This is silent. This is ongoing. And it just, again, it erodes trust and it erodes connection. One of the strategies that I use with my couples with this is to, you know, create sort of not necessarily a contract, but to create a set of non-negotiables about communication as a whole and what would be deal breakers. You know, what would be something that when it comes to money, say purchases, like do we want to have a discussion over every target run? Probably not, but come up together with, you know, a budgetary amount that say if you were going to spend over X amount of dollars on a purchase, you know, just shoot me a text or let's talk about it over dinner before we make any big decisions because our budget is X, Y, and Z. So if you can create a set of standards for yourself where you're communicating openly, you're negotiating openly, and it's not a mandate from one partner to another, but you can negotiate and you can collaborate. I don't like to say compromise sometimes because sometimes people think that that means that one person has to lose. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so collaborate on, hey, so this is what I want for our financial discussions to look like. So then you can also, you don't say, well, you never told me this or wow, I didn't know that this would upset you because we've already talked about it. And these are things that I also work with couples in terms of doing premarital counseling. You know, what are some of your ideas about a budget? What are some of your ideas about whether or not you're going to have children or what you want your savings to look like? What you feel are splurges that are worth it? You know, one person may feel like travel is the end-all be-all and some people think that that's something we can do when we're retired. So it's about encouraging couples to have these conversations that may not be comfortable and that may not be obvious and may not be something that is just kind of a, an autopilot response for them because so many people were raised in an environment where there was secrecy about money. And so we don't have a good model or a good system to communicate about that openly because what we were taught was you know, secrecy. And again, for a lot of people, it's about shame and difficulties. And so we've been taught in not such a direct way that you don't talk about such matters and you avoid conflict. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting. I was reading somewhere and I thought, man, this is such a good perspective. So I think I want this next conversation to all be, you know, at the risk of sounding like gender stereotyping and stuff, but just from like a historical point of view, marriage 
used to provide something different than it does today. And so today we look at marriage and look for it to be a partnership. I wonder sometimes, you know, are these conversations something that are hard for us to have, or we're not used to having, or we haven't learned to have because of the shift in marriage becoming more like a partnership. And maybe that's part of where we're not doing a really great job, you know, kind of evolving with the times, if you will, and having these conversations. Because realistically, marriage used to be something totally different. It used to be kind of like that contract where, you know, one person is a provider, one person is the caretaker, and you reproduced, and that was it. And then you had your community for friendship and validation. And like now we look for our partner to be all of these things for us. And there may be two providers and two caretakers, and we want that person to be everything for us and vice versa. Do you think that that's part of why it's kind of hard to have those conversations is maybe because evolutionarily it wasn't really something that was necessary? Right. And roles have changed. The breadwinner, you know, there's not always one breadwinner. It's not always the man. It's not, you know, there may be equal, like you said, partnerships and sharing and increased equity and reciprocity in relationships today. And I think that is more, uh, there are definitely, again, there's on the bell curve, there are people who fall more in line of more stereotypical, you know, conservative family makeups. But a lot of people are, like you said, evolving with the times. And we have to rewrite our own contracts and, and set our own path because there wasn't a model for us previously. And so we're kind of bumbling and stumbling to figure out what that looks like. And that's why, you know, going and talking to somebody like you who has that great knowledge base and can help that guide them through ways to have open, honest, healthy conversations about this in order to head it off at the pass. You know, so you're not going to have as many conflicts if you're intentional about wanting to do better at the front end saying, okay, this is something that maybe I'm not so great at. And this is new. This doesn't look like the way our parents did it. You know, maybe our peers don't do it this way, but this is something that matters to us. And so let's get some guidance. You know, let's figure out what the right way to do it is for us. And I think that more people are branching out in that way, instead of looking around to see what everybody else is doing, to look internally at your own partnership and your own couplehood and to say, what matters to us most and how can we make this work? And it's such, such an important conversation to have. Do you see any effects like on the bedroom where maybe some of those provider roles have shifted? I guess it's a two-part question. A, you know, if the provider roles have shifted into a non-quote-unquote traditional way, I hate using these words, but I don't know how else to describe it. Does that affect the bedroom from the standpoint of, I don't know how to go here, but I'm just going to go here. Like one person feeling more or less powerful or in control or... So I I think what I hear you saying is, you know, does it parlay into the bedroom, right? So if somebody has more control over the money or, you know, over the decision-making in the household, what does that look like in the bedroom? And what's interesting, and again, this is not everybody, but there is quite a weight that people who have to make a ton of decisions and are in very powerful roles in their daily lives are more likely to be or to want to be past 
excessive sometimes in the bedroom because of, again, that consistent weight and making the decisions and being in power and wanting to release and maybe have somebody else make a decision or have somebody else be in control of the circumstance. Now, there are plenty of people who don't want to relinquish any power whatsoever and want to control their circumstances in and out of the bedroom. So, you know, as long as you're having open conversations and creating a dialogue where both parties are getting their needs met, that could look very different from instance to instance, or people could kind of settle into, you know, their roles or their sexual repertoire that remains consistent. So it is very different for different people. It just depends on what interests you and, and what turns you on. Yeah. Interesting. That's true. Do you ever have couples who come in and maybe it's a male-female relationship and the female is the primary breadwinner and, you know, the male feels not so great about that. And so then that presents problems in the bedroom or is that something that is kind of getting less and less these days? What do you see in that regard? And again, it's so individual with couples that could be completely traumatic to one couple is a non-issue for another. But I definitely see with traditional roles in the family and, and financial power you know, shifting in our culture, I'm definitely seeing some changes in the roles in the family, the roles in the bedroom, because it's not just cookie cutter, right? So there are lots of other options. But if you don't choose that, so say if there's someone who is in a partnership and they both have great jobs and then one goes to school and continues to succeed and the other one feels kind of stuck in their role, there may be some resentment there that doesn't necessarily have to do with, oh, well, maybe that it's the female who's rising up and I'm the male I'm supposed to, quote unquote, be the breadwinner. But it just may be envy of, hey, someone is bypassing me. And maybe I'm disappointed or disappointed in myself or envious of their success and I want that. And so some of my internalization and my own you know, feelings of worthiness have decreased. I may take that out on the person who I see is bypassing me. Again, a lot of this happening behind the scenes. People are not necessarily saying, hey, you know, it really hurts my feelings that you got a promotion. They're, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> that doesn't. Right. You know, we want to be happy for our partners. We want to be joyful and proud of them. And we are, however, our own egos. And again, stereotypical roles in our society may keep us feeling as if I should also be feeling badly about this. As proud as I am and as happy I am, I should also be feeling that I'm less worthwhile because I'm not making as much money or I'm not as powerful. So I hope that some of those stereotypical roles in our culture are starting to shift and change where we could, again, genuinely be happy and still strive to do our best and to not feel like we have to be pigeonholed because of our genders that we have to do one thing or another. So this is something that the societal stuff is something that really creeps its way into everything, right? And so it's like, especially in the money conversation, and I find myself thinking about, oh, society thinks X, Y, or Z. I mean, just the other day, I was having this conversation where I'm moving and it's a long story. I'm not going to go into it, but I have some health issues. So for me right now, it makes more sense to rent than to buy. And 
there's all this societal stigma on renting versus buying. And I could spend a whole time on that and maybe I will some other day, but it's like these societal things are so real because people look at you side-eyed when you are bucking the societal norms, you know? And so, and that side-eye is something you take really personally and they don't have to say a word. They just have to make a twitch in their body and you know what they're thinking. And that's why when I coach couples, I take it all the way back and I take it to the emotional part because to me, it's so important to talk about that stuff and so important like you said, it's not that, you know, we're not happy for someone else, but there's some junk that we're dealing with that's making us feel inadequate in some way or whatever it is. And those are the things that I really want to bring out in people because I feel like those are the things that we really need to work through in order to achieve our financial goals. Yes. And so much of that is rigidity of thought that comes from somewhere else. Right. So when we are judging or when we are supposing or thinking that this is what we should be doing for ourselves or for someone else, a lot of times that's coming from, you know, I always call them like the old, your old mixtape that we've been inoculated throughout our childhood and in our life experiences that we're taught and shown to think certain ways about certain things. And when we become adults, it's really important to stand on our own two feet and look around and question some of those antiquated belief systems that, again, that we may not actually really believe in. However, we've been taught this, and so we regurgitate those old messages from our family of origin, from our teachers, our coaches, our parents, our grandparents, our churches, our, you know, our siblings, our peer groups, the media. So we're just saying what everybody has taught us before. And it's important to really look and see where you stand as an adult and using your free will and original thought, questioning and challenging some of those belief systems that may or may not fit you today. And sometimes we don't even realize that the things that we're saying and doing that we're just, again, relaying those messages from the past without challenging or questioning them for ourselves and getting outside of that, those hurt feelings or the guilt that I should be doing this or people will think this way of me, you know, is very antiquated because we have to make decisions for ourselves that are based on our needs, our desires, what's going to push us forward rather than what's going to soothe and appease some, you know, magical person who we may not even be able to to put a finger on who it is that we're trying to please. Yeah, I preach, girl. <laughs> That's why, you know, I, I'm also a self-help junkie. And so I love doing personal development and I am constantly trying to grow myself and better myself and understand myself and, and make those decisions on how I feel about X, Y, or Z. And there are just so many people who don't ever sit to make those conscious decisions. And so what do I actually feel about X, Y, or Z? And I could get started on a lot of things from this conversation, but I won't. No, I think you're you're so spot on that this is, especially in this day and age, like this is the time to stop and think about how we actually feel ourselves on every topic and make a conscious decision to either change or not change. And that's why for me, like, you know, figuring out where you stand with 
money. So I'll always bring it back there, but you know, where you stand or, you know, are you a spender or a saver and what needs is that fulfilling and why, and all of that, like, and then at the end, the question I always want someone to ask themselves is, is this the way I want it to be? Or do I want to change it? And that's a very important question. Just because you're a saver or spender doesn't make you good or bad. It doesn't make it wrong or right. It just, right. You have to make the decision for yourself. If there's a change you want to make, or if there's not. So one thing that I was thinking while you were talking about that was, you know, when you're in a relationship that's kind of maybe in a little bit of turmoil and you've gotten to a place where maybe trust has been eroded or just things are really rocky, I find that when I'm in that type of relationship, it's really easy to start thinking that everything the other person is doing is coming from a bad place as opposed to maybe that there's a good reason that they're doing what they're doing. And so other than just making the conscious decision to say, I'm going to try to find a good reason for why this person is doing this, how do you get yourself back from the ledge? Like, how do you start, you know, when intimacy is completely gone, when communication is completely gone, when you're just kind of like at your wits end and, you know, you see it a lot with financial stuff, but you see it in other areas as well. Like, how do you get yourself back from that ledge where you're just resentful and you're contemptuous? How do you start regaining any of what you lost? I think that what we tend to do is when we give up in that way, especially if we've been together for a long time, we presume and we assume it's like, well, I'm not even going to bother bringing it up because I know what they're going to say, right? And so what we do at that point, we do two things. One, we rob ourselves of the opportunity of being heard and of starting to work on the discord and compromise and collaborate. We do that. But two, when we don't bring it up, we also rob our partners of the opportunity to rise up and meet our needs. So if I continue to stuff it and build my resentment and my anger without talking to you about it. So I think that what we do is we kind of cut ourselves off at the knees when we get so ingrained in our emotional upset And then we just kind of throw in the towel. So, you know, either we need to extricate ourselves from those relationships that cause us that grave pain and that damage where we just, we think that there's no light at the end of the tunnel and that they're always going to treat us that way or that their behavior is malicious in some way, you know, then that's a very different question. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what you said was really powerful about, it's like, you're creating the narrative in your head yourself without even involving your partner sometimes. And I think we're all guilty of doing that. Like, you know, oh, this MFR, he's not helping me do this, you know, load the dishwasher because he's an asshole and he's just over there being lazy and blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, you've taken it to the very end without even involving your partner, right? And we can do that. We can take it to the end in like a split second. And so- It's like, how do you reel yourself back from that? You need to, you know, kind of reel yourself back and then approach it not in that tone, right? And so all of that is really hard. And But what it comes down to for most couples, it's not a lack of desire to want to meet your needs. It's not that I want to be getting in these same arguments over and over and over. It's a lack of skill set. And I hear every single day in my office, someone saying, if she would just 
dot, 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 or if he would just dot, 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 whatever that thing is. And the partner saying, if I knew how I would, or if you made it clear of what you needed, then I might understand it better. And so it's not that people are necessarily withholding their love or withholding their best selves from you. It's, it's a lack of skills. They don't know how to meet your emotional needs in the way that you need them met. So it does take practice. And, you know, I think people come into a relationship or a marriage, you know, we have to maintain everything. You have to mow your lawn. We need to scrub our toilets. We have to change the oil in our cars, but we get married and we have this magical thinking that this is now on autopilot and we don't have to, we don't have to check in. We don't have to maintain. We don't have to work on it. And, you know, a lot of people say marriage is hard work. It's hard. It's not, doesn't have to be hard work, but it's consistent work. It's consistent, intentional, loving work. It's great work to do, you know, when you're doing it together. But sometimes one or another party in the relationship may have a dearth of skills when it comes to relationships and communication. And so you fall back into the, well, I know what they'd say, but so I'm not even going to bother. And that is, I think that that's just so detrimental because if you don't bother, they can never meet your needs and you don't get heard. Right. Yep. That's right. And I think part of it too is explaining why something's important to you. You know, if you're just nagging someone to do something over and over again, but you never explain to them what that would provide for you, like they don't understand that it should be as important to them as it is to you. Right. So if you're never explaining, I don't know, I need you to whatever it is take out the garbage or whatever, load the dishwasher or do whatever. And you never explain to them like, here's why that's so important to me. I feel overwhelmed by X, Y, and Z. It's just something that I feel would give me such peace of mind if I knew you would just do it. Like, I don't know, something like explain to them why it's important to you. And that's something we also don't do. We just assume that our partner is a mind reader. I think it also has to do with explaining. And I, even in the financial area too, is like, you know, Hey, honey, you went and spent that $50 at Target. And instead of yelling at the person about it, saying, Here it is, we were on a budget this week. Here's what is stressing me out about the fact that you spent that $50 that we didn't have. Or, you know what I mean? Like having the conversation of why, like the why is very important. Right. But I know to be true that why people hesitate to do that is because if I speak up and tell you my why, I am in an emotionally vulnerable state of being rejected by you. Mm. And so I may say, I may build up the nerve to say, this is really important to me. Will you agree with me? And somebody could say, no, I don't agree. And then you feel cast out. You feel minimized or demeaned, even though it's just someone disagreeing with you. But if you're trying to get up the courage to stand your ground or to assert yourself, especially if you don't have a lot of history of being able to assert yourself in a relationship with someone whom you love, it is emotional risk-taking to ask to get those needs met. And I think a lot of people just kind of stuff it and stuff it because they're afraid of being rejected. Yeah. So how do you create a, a safe environment to express your needs? 
I think definitely saying that, you know, if there's been a history before where if I've said something that was somewhat emotionally risky and you shut me down to say, you know, I feel like I wasn't heard and that my opinion wasn't of value to you. And I'd like for us to sit down and be able to, again, have a a calm, different type of conversation than maybe we have had before. And sometimes people need that mediator. Sometimes people need someone to be that objective third party to help guide the conversation in a way that's productive and valuable and that they can learn new skills in the moment while they're having those conversations. Because so often people are having the same arguments over and over and over without any new results and without any changes. And so sometimes, you know, going to therapy or reading self-help books and talking to other people about what's worked for them, about new communication strategies that they may not have thought of before. Because if we did it well, you and I wouldn't be having these conversations. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. If it came naturally, you know, nobody would need either one of us. It's okay to ask for help when you aren't able or you don't have the tools yet to get where you want to go. I mean, both financially and in the bedroom, right? Mm -hmm. Where can people find you online if they want to engage with you, you know, either on social media or website? Sure. So my website is www.drday.com and that's D-R-D-A-E. And I'm on Facebook at Dr. Day, D-R-D-A-E, and on Twitter at Ask Dr. Day. Awesome. You are the best. Thank you so much for leaving your son's robotics competition to do this podcast. Um, You are awesome. And um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for opening up the conversations that we all need to be having. And they're not easy ones, but they're good ones to have. And once people find that guidance and feel empowered by the knowledge that they don't have to do what they've always done before or what they learned growing up, they can really move forward and have a greater confidence in their ability to connect with the people they love. If you like Love Done Money, do me a favor and tell a friend, or five. I'm Azure Ashby, and until next time, I wish you both love and money. Take care.